I did notice that this song was written by Babyface, which felt very appropriate because I also couldn't escape the feeling that I was at like a middle school dance. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and critics go through uh, albums on the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die and give our very learned and well-researched opinions on the songs, the structure, the albums, the bands, and talk about whether this piece of art deserves to be lauded as an album you must hear before you die. Um, with me this week, as always, we have our regular list of players. Uh, I am Tom, and I am very excited to talk about the album this week. We also have Alan. Alan, introduce yourself. I'm Alan, a child of the MTV 90s, ready to talk about some uh, talk some shop here. Phil. I am Phil, also familiar with this week's record from the 90s. And I'm Rob. Yes, I too watched MTV music videos as a teenage boy in the 1990s and thus am familiar with TLC. That is right. This week, we are going to be covering an album that sold a surprising amount of copies when I ended up looking it up. We're doing TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool. So, listeners out there, if you have not recently listened to TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool, I recommend you pause this podcast right now, go listen to the album. Uh, it's going to greatly enhance the overall experience that you're going to have. Uh, listen to us dissect some of the specifics on this. Um, I think that it's uh, going to be an album that you're going to find to be a trip down memory lane, especially if you are a uh, somebody like us who grew up in the 90s and uh, was one of those people who were somewhat parented by MTV and certainly had a lot of your musical opinions formed by MTV. Let's talk a little bit about TLC. They are... And this was actually surprising to me, the most successful U.S. female group of all time Whoa. in terms of record sales. Yeah, the most successful. I was blown away. I thought Salt and Pepper would have beat them because I think Salt and Pepper are way better than TLC. But no, they were the most successful female U.S. group of all time. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, who else is in this category? This, is this only like a hip-hop R&B genre? I mean, does this include like the Supremes and stuff female like that? Female groups. Huh. They sold. They definitely sold more records than the Supremes. Certainly, I would have thought Spice Girls, but then I realized they were not U.S. based. So I can't think of anybody else offhand. I mean, I guess that checks out. They had two TLC had two huge, big, two huge records. They did have two pretty huge records, and actually, one record that was pretty big. I wouldn't say it's like you know earth shatteringly huge, but their first record was pretty darn big too. But yeah, they are they are a trio. Uh, they're formed in 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia. They are comprised of Tian Tibaz Watkins, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, and Rosanda Chili Thomas. Basically, they were the brainchild of Jermaine Dupri. They wanted to form a female group in the vein of Belle Biv DeVoe. Like that was sort of who they were. They were trying to be like the female counterpart to, to Belle Biv DeVoe, BBD. And, uh, Oddly enough, I mean, that, that seems like something that at the time was probably like very 
boastful and like an unattainable um, <laughs> uh, 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 goal, but I mean, they blew BBD out of the water in terms yeah, of record sales. I think sales. that's they, safe they to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when they were originally formed, it was Tian, Lisa, and another woman named Crystal Jones, who was a member of the band. And Crystal Jones, no Wikipedia page on Crystal Jones. She didn't end up doing anything. Left the band um, shortly after their forming. And uh, I got to imagine that's one of those, you know, she's probably just sitting at bars like anger drinking to this day of like, man, I could have been in TLC. Hold on. Didn't leave the band. As my understanding, first of all, she was the first member that was recruited by Jermaine Dupree to build a band around, to build this sort of tomboy girl band version of Belle Biv DeVoe. And then when they got T-Boz and Left Eye In and they like auditioned for L.A. Reed of LaFace Records, then he was like, I like the band, but you got to get rid of this crystal chick. And they kicked, I, I think L.A. Reed kicked her out. So it's, yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, hence the anger drinking, right? <laughs> like so close, so close to... Well, I guess we'll talk about it later, but maybe not being a millionaire, but uh, at least, uh, you know, having worldwide fame. So close to signing a really flawed contract <laughs> later to be shafted. You know, um, we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit more about that later. I have some, some strong opinions on that. But yeah, so Chili, that, that's why her nickname is Chili Thomas. Uh, Rosanda Thomas, but they call her Chili, and that's where the C comes from. So they can keep the TLC name. Um, all the other nicknames make a little bit more sense. Chili, I don't think, makes a ton of sense for her. But, you know, whatever. That's fine. You know, it's funny. Like, in researching this, I was basically – I came to the opinion that, like, Jermaine Dupri was basically like the Forrest Gump of 90s, 2000 music. He was everywhere. That man was on everything. I Like, the list of his – he's, like, one of those people who has, like, the Wikipedia – article of like his discography has to be like alphabetical order it's like here's all the a songs that he produced here's all the b songs he produced there's so many of them but in like a song that i think is like amazing i still to this day think is a great song he was intimately involved in the writing product and production of mariah carey's always be my baby hmm. which is a fantastic song that's a winner that is a winner it's a real winner some like great chord movement in there it's really Really good. Just to take a detour to the low light of his career, perhaps he. I heard a story that he was just hanging out at the mall, and he saw these two kids wearing their shirts backwards, and he was like, "You, we need oh to get God. you in the recording booth," and thus was birthed Crisscross. Such such memorable hits as "I Miss the Bus" and "I Will Never Ever Ever Do Again." I mean, he had to have made so much money off of Crisscross. Is that though. is that really how that happened? That's I saw that on a, like a hip hop documentary on Netflix. That, that yeah. They were just hanging out at a pretzel shop with weird fashion. And he was like, those kids are cool. <laughs> you talking about the Mac Daddy and the Daddy Mac? <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they were like, they're probably like 10 at the time or something. <laughs> yeah. The, this is also the beginning of like a ton of like serial killer slash child molester stories of like, I went up to two 10 year olds in the mall and was like, hey, I like your style, kids. You want to come over <laughs> yeah, to my Come to my recording studio. studio. <laughs> yeah. No, your parents don't need to be there actually no joke that was that's the plot of which i recently learned from the netflix series mindhunter but it's based on the true story of those atlanta child murders that that dude that ended up being convicted yeah. for a whole bunch of them he would lure kids to the studio he thought he was like a like pretending he was a jackson you know what's the jackson family head guy's name oh, he jackson. told him he was gonna make them stars yeah. that's my point <laughs> and then he killed them yeah yep yep I mean, you know, killed them, hoses them out of millions of dollars in the contract. It's all basically the same, right? Sure, yeah. 
He also was, uh, he wrote a bunch of stuff on that Usher album, My Way, and the first Destiny Child album. So, like, this man has spawned some serious careers. Again, I've, like, his solo stuff is not good at all. I don't kind of understand how these two things can't translate, but, like... (laughs) Somehow, he can write great songs for other people. Yeah, well, I think it goes to show, you know, I think people give a lot of shit these days to, like, modern pop artists as as if, you know, these songs are written in, like, a lab by somebody who's got, like, a, a secret formula. When in reality, it you know, you're, you're not the one selling it. The song is often not what's selling it. It's often the, the package, you know, the, the presentation, the execution, all that stuff. And I think that's kind of important to, to remember. Sure. He was the uh, the Keith Flint devil horn hairstyle of the uh, of the <laughs> band. He he really tied it all together with the package. I think it's a story also just about knowing your lane. We talked recently in the Count Basie episode about who was a Quincy Jones who was sort of a not great trumpet player, and then went into arrangement and production, found his his spot, and I'm sure we're going to talk about Babyface here too. I think he also tried to record a few albums with a little less success than sort of being the songwriter, producer personality. Like, it's just the way it works, right? Yeah. And, you know, Babyface, not a great name. If you're trying to be out there and, like, be the one, I don't think Babyface is a great name. TLC, great name for a group. Really good. Um, You know, you talked a little bit about the lanes, and uh, I think that that's a good segue into talking about the the TLC sound. Because they do actually have, I I find, a very specific and very recognizable sound, and it is very much dictated by, like, they each sort of had their own lane that they stuck in, you know? Like, T-Boz was the sort of, like, very low, sultry singer, and apparently that was a production note from Jermaine Dupri. She can sing high. She has, like, a normal singing range, but he's like, no, 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 for you, it's, like, low, smoky, sultry. That's what's going to kind of be the differentiator for you. And, uh, you know, Lisa Lopez is, like, the rapper, and then uh, Chili uh, Rosanda is, like, they're, she's just, like, the straight R&B. They're like, you're just, like, the R&B singer in the group. And so you kind of have, like, almost, like, the smoky, I'm not going to say necessarily jazz singer, but sort of that kind of vibe from T-Boz then the rapper, and then like R&B, and they sort of mash them all up together. And it really informs the sound of the group in a way that I think when it works, it works really well. But um, it's kind of like, you know, if you have like a mandolin player in your band, like you're like the string cheese incident, you have like a mandolin (laughs) player in your band, you get a lot of mandolin, and a lot of stuff doesn't call for mandolin. And so a lot of times they're just sort of mashing these things in. It's like, you know, maybe just don't be on that song. Maybe you don't need to be there. That was this is the one of the biggest things that jumped out to me when I first started listening to it is that in my memory I thought they were a little more I, I I thought they were a little less individually distinguished in the way you just described. And that jumped out into me right away. The fact that T Boz is pretty clearly the front woman. They dropped Chili in there for the kind of songstress chorus high note things and Lisa's doing the raps and really doesn't even seem present on a lot of the songs, which I'm sure we'll get into the backstory of talk about that a little bit yeah i had remember that that group swv sisters with voices from back in the day sure uh i had that in my head more like there was going to be a lot of harmony there was going to be a lot of that kind of like you know three really good singers going at it and no it's really there's really not a lot of that on the album you know i found it i found it to be um again like i said when it works it works really well um so let's talk a little bit about when it worked which was on Crazy Sexy Cool, released 
November 15th of 1994. And also as an interesting side note, number one song in America, November 15th, 1994, also written by Babyface, Boys to Men's I'll Make Love to You, mm-hmm. um, which is a great song. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great song. Yeah. So this was the follow-up, their second albums following the the horribly titled first album of theirs, Ooh, on the TLC tip, which Ooh has six O's and three H's in it for some reason. <laughs> I mean, can, why? How many syllables is that? Also, do yourself a favor and just look up the cover, the album cover art to that original <laughs> TLC oh record where they're sort of like all jumping in air. It looks like they were a part of some sort of painting they're all wearing primary colors it's it's truly bizarre it's bad it's bad i actually went it's, and listened to some of that terrible. just to recontextualize you know this album to, to that one and the videos were, were pretty brutal in just just that like early 90s aesthetic the colors the and even their their kind of tomboy gigantic hats and yeah well they also right. yeah. they also each they had they wore condoms on some part of their body do you guys remember that a big part of it's a big part of their sound just sense. uh yeah i mean i guess that was a nice psa so the funny thing is like the cover for crazy sexy cool i think is a really good cover agree um it's like the red it's stark it's a good cover Ooh, on the tlc tip is terrible their next album <laughs> fan mail it's terrible it looks like like really low-tech early 2000s digital renderings of their face so it's basically <laughs> it looks like the it kind of looks like um the crazy sexy cool cover but like done in like you know poorly really really poorly it looks terrible hmm. so you know i for, for whatever reason they knocked it out of the park on this one and of their like overall sales like this album is a gigantic portion of their sales overall so when this was released it debuted at number one came debuted as the number one album and it was two years after the release of their first album so i guess they were a big name it went 12 times platinum they sold 14 million copies of this worldwide that is a hell of a lot of albums and and this is right at the end of people buying records right like this is right at the end of it's like peak cd buying dude 94 this peak cds yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so but they have a very interesting um you know backstory of the band that the band declared bankruptcy in 1996 they were they'd sold 10 million copies of this album between 1994 and 1996 and they declared bankruptcy and i'm sure you guys remember the whole sort of like they were pretty open and honest about it talking in interviews about like yeah we're broke we don't have any money and the lisa lopez like gives an actual like a pretty good breakdown of it in an interview where she's like this is how you sell 10 million albums and you're broke like uh we they basically said that on the albums you know there's a 100 points on the album and tlc had seven of those points and Whoa. each of the each of the points was worth eight cents, and so they're basically every time an album gets sold, they made fifty six cents. And so mm. she's like, "All right, we had five point six million dollars, um, so like that's a lot of money." Except for the album cost three million dollars to record, <laughs> and they had to pay it all back to the record company, which is out of control. How do you spend three million dollars recording an album? Wait, is some of that the production cost? So this is. Because relating to their first album, too, the one of the things that struck me was, first of all, this is a production bonanza, right? You have not only Jermaine Dupri writing and producing some of the songs, you have Dallas Austin, another 
powerhouse of that genre, and of course, Babyface. So was some of that paying their salaries? Well, I like, mean, you've got no, you got more. You've got you've got Fife. You've got Puff Daddy. Right. Yeah, oh, uh, well, that's the big part of their problem. They don't write any of their stuff. And this is what I want to talk about. Like, is that a bad contract? Yes or no? Because if I'm being honest, they could have put any three women in there. And with this kind of songwriting and the production for the videos and everything like that, like maybe they wouldn't have been as successful, but they would have been pretty damn successful. And that's what happens when you don't have basically the only writing credits for them on the album are when Lisa Lopez does a rap first, she gets writing credit for that. And when there's like a couple of the interludes that they have writing credits on, but all their hits were not written by them. I think Paul McCartney should probably get a writing credit too, honestly, but maybe we'll get to that later. (laughs) <laughs> well, so I think you're talking about al- – so with I, I do think with album sales, I mean, you can kind of look at it both ways. And I think we talked about this earlier. You know, when Babyface goes out and tries to do his own thing, it's kind of weak. So therefore, you know, it's a, it's a symbiotic – very much a symbiotic relationship. Now, I think where it gets a little interesting, you know, I don't know how the, those – uh, revenues were working for, for touring purposes. I do think that should really be primarily going to the artist. And I don't know if that was, mm. um, absolutely you know. held up by Lisa left. eye Lopez's alcoholism and drug use, Ar- maybe arson. Like they tendencies. couldn't tour as much. I'm guessing. So I think a big part of the reason why it, uh, cost $3 million to record this album is because, um, it was recorded basically over almost a year. Like, they started in late 93, and they recorded all the way into September 94 for the album. And, uh, yes, as previously mentioned, uh, Lisa Left Eye Lopez was in a on probation and in a halfway house because she had pled guilty to arson for burning down her, at the time, boyfriend. I don't know if they were married yet. Uh, uh, Andre Bad Moon Risen's uh, mansion that they oh, shared yeah. together. That's a great nickname, by the way, Bad Moon Risen. Great. But, you know, real star of, of the Tech Mobile days. Yes. In case there was any question as to if uh, Left Eye was the crazy, sexy or cool one, I think she pretty <laughs> much shows she was the crazy one. Um, burned down their house. Together. You know, to have access to the studio for a whole year is going to run you like yeah, yeah, three million bucks. It's like three hundred fifty dollars now. Well, does that also include the Waterfalls video, which I I saw at that time cost a mil to produce. Like, does, is that wrapped into the production costs? That's a good question. I didn't get, I don't have a breakdown of whether or not the video production cost. She basically, she said the album cost $3 million to record. She did not say it cost, you know, $3 million to record and do the videos. So I think that she's just talking about the production cost of the album. But like, one of the things you'll notice is that like Lisa Lopez is not on a lot of the tracks on this album. And it's because she was basically on, like, um, the limited release from this halfway house that she was on. She would come in and just do, like, a couple of verses and have to go right back to the halfway house. I got to say, the album is better for that. So, yes, in my opinion. Well, listen, let's... um Let's let's jump right into some of the songs here because we, we we've talked a little bit about sort of like their sound. We talked a little bit about what they um, the lanes that they have. I want to jump right into a song that actually it doesn't feature Left Eye Lopez on this one, but uh, I want to talk about the song Creep, which is the song that I actually was kind of the most familiar with, even more so than Waterfalls on this album. So let's spin just a second of Creep and give you kind of an idea of uh, a lot of the sound on this album. Loneliness, and we've been so many things. 
Cool. All right, so we've listened to Creep. We got our level set here. We're going to dive into some of the specifics on Creep in just a moment. But for right now, Alan, I just want to know, what was your initial impression when you listened to this album? What would you think? Yeah, so what's funny is as ubiquitous as this album was growing up, I don't think I ever listened to it like front to back. So aside from the hits, and I think this is probably common for a lot of albums like this, a lot of awareness of the hits, but I, I hadn't heard any of the other songs, to, to be honest. And I think my impression is pretty much unchanged from from how I kind of remember them back in the day. Like when I think of 90s R&B, they kind of come to mind immediately. So I think as a group, like they're really memorable, important, iconic, definitely a hit machine. You know, the hits are, are, are fantastic, but I think as an overall album, it felt like a little bit of a slog to me, to be honest. You know, by the time I got to the end, I was very much ready for it to be over. Um, so the interludes felt kind of pointless. The the sexy interlude was kind of funny. Um, but, you know, I think we already touched on production, arrangements, all that stuff earlier. I think when you have that kind of talent, putting the album together, it's going to be really well produced and sound good. A couple straight bangers on the record. But, um, you know, I, I thought it was, was just all right. What would you think, Phil? Yeah, I mean, I think you make a, a really good point about some of the interludes, right? And, uh, you know, some of, you know, what what point do they serve? Maybe there's a, a story being told there that, I like, I'm missing. Uh, well, one of the interludes is, is three minutes long. And, like... <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's just a song. I, is, that, is it interlude at that point? Like, what even is that? Uh, anyway. I, well, no, and I mean, I think you make a, a great point, and you, you even sort of... It even asks a question like, "What is an album?" Because this does did really feel to me like, you know, I'd say, you know, whatever eight tracks and then some interesting filler material, right? What was a positive impression about the album that like sort of jumped out that wasn't apparent to me going into it is that there's a lot of like gateway jazz in the record, right? Whether those are samples or original compositions. You know, I, I count probably, you know, five, maybe six songs that I feel have like real jazz changes um, and real hardcore like songwriter changes. So in that way, I think, you know, there's definitely some hip stuff on the record. Most of the Babyface songs? <laughs> I, you know, I actually didn't look, intentionally didn't look up who wrote which songs just, you know, so I can be surprised. Fair enough. Although probably not so surprised. <laughs> Rob, what'd you think? Yeah, I would echo a lot of what was already said. I had a little more softness in my heart for TLC. I listened a bit more to them actively, maybe, especially before this came out, when I think that Ooh on the TLC tip album, listening back to it this week, they're, salt, they're watered down salt and pepper kind of band. With this one, they're, I think they're making a, a little bit of a clearer statement of what they're they're trying to be, and so it was a nice trip down memory lane. I, I was, I'd heard these songs before in most cases. It was more consistent than I actually thought it was going to be, and that was pleasant. It was a little bit of a slog for me too, partly because it's just not my genre. I don't really care, but I kind of am coming into this conversation feeling like I can be convinced that this is a seminal R&B album, and if you like a certain kind of music, it it stands as an important pillar in the canon. I can be convinced of that, maybe, through this conversation. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, Rob, because I find, like, when I'm on a long car ride, I like to, you know, like, scan the radio for stuff I haven't heard. And I find that, like, this sort of R&B, 
especially if I'm completely unfamiliar with it, is like the sort of thing that might stop me for a while, right? Like I might hang out there for a couple of tunes. So I, and I can definitely see a very clear thread from like this uh, to a lot of that sort of more modern R&B, right? Well, Phil, you made a you made a good point earlier about some of the like gateway jazz. In the same way that I think, like you can make an argument that maybe some Steely Dan fits that category. Sure. There were some songs where I was like, "Hey, I could totally see that little, you know, whatever chord is happening on synth being in an old Steely Dan song." And I think you know some of the throwbacks to like original R and B, like Motown and things like that. I think there's a lot of those cool kind of sensibilities that. You know, to your point, you can kind of get lost in and and have ha- come in with like a critic's mindset and and get some appreciation sure. out of. And and you know, I think this came up another time as well. Like, there is an odd thread between this new jack swing sound and Soul Live, right? Who were sort of a sort of hot jazz band in the late '90s, early 2000s, right? Especially like live jazz, right? Like a band that could sell a couple hundred, maybe thousand tickets in, in a bunch of cities. So, you know, there's this thing with this album that I I think it's somewhat uh, epitomized in, the, in a negative way by the song Creep, even though I do like this song, is that they're trying to be a little bit songwritery, and then they're also trying to be a little bit hip-hop, and a lot of the hallmarks of a hip-hop song is that, like, it doesn't really change. Like, the backbeat and everything stays super mm-hmm. consistent, and you're just kind of adding layers and taking things apart. And, like, Creep is very much like that. Their song does not change. They keep adding layers in. I think it works really well on this song, but I also feel like you can tell that they built this album around a couple of songs. They definitely built this album around Creep and Waterfalls and like maybe to a another degree um, that song Digging On You or like Red Light Special. But yep. it feels like they were like, we have these songs. This is the core. And then we're going to fill it out because we have to put out a CD. And I feel like if this was being put out now, like there's that phenomenon where they'll be like, hey, Cardi B is like the number one selling artist in the country and she's going to put her first album out next month. And I'm like, how, how are you the number one selling artist if you haven't put your album out yet? But they just like put a song or two together and they release that and it gets a lot of play. And I feel like if, if this was happening in this era, they would have been like, this came up last week on the police. Uh, yeah. You would have just put out just that song. Be like, we're just going to put this song out. It's a good song and that's it. We'll, we'll, we'll worry about an album later. We'll build an album. It's, it's fine. We'll capitalize on that success, but like, let's get something out there right now. Or or not even right? Yeah, I don't even. I feel yeah, like they don't some even people don't even do yeah. that. They just yeah. go singles are the way to go. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what was interesting about that era was like you really couldn't get the music any other way except for like listening to Q102, just waiting for the song you want to hear to, to come on, or you had to go buy the entire album. And so, you know, not to say that that is is why this album sold so many copies necessarily, but you know, it's 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 easier to see why. Anchoring a song, anchoring an album with a few bangers, is going to generate you know nobody's buying eight million CD record sales back in the day and being like oh yeah I'm going to buy this you know That's fourteen dollars you're, you're not moving single. a lot of this I, I so never. let's let's talk about creep specifically Alan what were your thoughts on this song specifically so <laughs> the funny part about this song so for I I think it's a really great song I think that the horn riff is really tasty. It kind of reminds me of, you know, sometimes if I'm working and I need just some background music 
to be able to concentrate with no words. So speaking purely of the music, I'll put on like, you know, basic sort of trip hop music. And I thought that the way that this, like the backbone of the song really felt just nice and jazzy and smooth. The funny part for me, I always think about how many songs at the time were named Creep. (laughs) Around when this came out, there was like the Stone Temple Pilots Creep, there was Radiohead. So anyway, I always thought that was kind of funny. But um, no, I I think this is, uh, you know, obviously one of the songs that, that anchored, you know, this album. It's, it, it is hard when you've heard a song this many times, you know, to to look at it with fresh eyes. But I think it's a great song. You know, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, it, I agree with Tom's sort of assertion that this this project was based around a couple of tunes and this was probably one of the pillars, right? And they probably knew that this was sort of going to be a hit. You know, this this song, I think, in particular, had something that I had forgotten about from this era, uh, which was the pointless edition of, like, turntable scratching. And this song, <laughs> there's just, yeah, there's just a lot That's, of turntable uh, they're scratching. They're sampling Slick Rick in there, man. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that's lost on me. It's just a scratching sound to me. It's fine. I mean, I know what it is. I just, I just forgot that whole thing. You weren't reminded was, by yeah. our, our Hansons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that mm-hmm. could be forgotten. You know, this. I think of the big hits on the record, this Waterfalls Red Light Special. I think this one was cool, and I sort of like, I liked it um, as the record. You know, the first time I played it through, maybe. But I think of the sort of big hits, this actually is probably my. I wouldn't say my least favorite, but I would, I would, I would list it lower. Not a lot of dynamics in the song. It is very, you know, sort of build layers, take layers away, build layers, take layers away, build layers, take layers away, and no, le- no left eye Lopez. I, I was left wondering, like, if she had been able to be in the studio more, would there have been of like a rap verse on this song? And uh, it would have been way worse if there was. Yeah, I have to say I disagree with Phil. This, is, this is my favorite. This to me, this is the best track on the album. Uh, certainly the best of the hits and I was pleasantly surprised maybe I just hadn't blown this one out in my ears I think all the production is tasteful as Alan implied the jazziness kind of made me think of diggable planets you know Roberta Slick that kind of music which I've always liked I thought even the record scratches were kind of tasteful and they almost used that scratchy sound and to sort of modulate the fidelity of the recording throughout the thing I really liked the line 22nd of loneliness. I think that was a well-written line, although they did hammer it a little too much. Where would they come back for the 23rd of loneliness on the next verse? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit much, but it was a good idea. I appreciate that aspect of writing. And, and the other thing I wanted to mention, and maybe we can even play this part, but I just, I like melodically the little, right, I think it kind of happens like right before the chorus where the melody kind of floats up into falsetto to get to the chorus. Yeah, I just I thought exactly that was a nice little about. melodic piece. Well, you know, we can, we'll play that because the, actually the one line that I wanted to highlight is them being extremely thematically consistent flows right into that, which is the line the basically the entire time they're talking about their, their boyfriend is cheating on them. And but, so they choose to cheat as well. And, but they throw in the line and I choose to keep him protected at the very end, and it makes me think that she's like, I'm cheating, but I'm still having safe sex. Thematically consistent, you know? Um, oh. That's the line that, like, goes right into the chorus, yeah. So let's listen I to that right about not. I thought it was about not telling her boyfriend, but go ahead. I, m- there's layers to this shit, Rob, right? This, not, this uh, is clearly. chess, not checkers. <laughs> 4D chess. 
So that is that is creep. Let's uh, let's keep on rolling. We're gonna roll right along to the next song that we had decided. Wait, can I say one more thing? I mean, it it can come up again, but so this one was is credited to this guy Dallas Austin as both writer and producer, who I believe later married Chili. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what the story is there, but I wanted to mention it because on a little Wikipedia dive about Dallas Austin, he produced pretty much the entirety of Cooley High Harmony, the Boys to Men album. Totally. Which I thought was great, and so maybe maybe that makes some sense why I like this song the best because I think this is one of his only songs. That he this is the only one of the hits from Crazy Sexy Cool that he's credited with. But just random fact for you guys, in looking into Cooley High Harmony, did you know that it's so hard to say goodbye is a cover song? I never knew that. No. What? I did know that. I don't know who it's from, but I, I do remember when when I first saw that on MTV, Kurt Loder or whoever. <laughs> Definitely mentioned that once, but I don't know the origin. <laughs> Kurt Loader. So it's it's from the the artist's name is GC Cameron. The arrangement's pretty similar. I'll put it on the Spotify playlist. But it's from the soundtrack they wrote it for the soundtrack to a movie called Cooley High, which was apparently sort of a black cinema version, a you know, high school film from the seventies, basically. And it had a lot of and there's a ton of great artists on the soundtrack. I haven't you know Stevie Wonder's on there, and you know there's a bunch of other people of the time on there. But yeah, I just found that really interesting. Wow, that is quite interesting. Just wanted that to say that. Fantastic song. That is my go-to karaoke song. I feel like Tom mentioned his go-to karaoke song recently, but yeah, my go-to karaoke song is a lot easier than yours is. I will say. But let's move to. Uh, I'm going to guess none of our go-to karaoke songs. Uh, Kick your game. Uh, let's just let's just spin a little bit of kick your game right now level set to what we're talking about come on let me kick a little game to you baby baby let me kick a little game to you come on let me kick a little game to you baby baby let me kick a little game to you uh. i've been watching you watching me and i know you want it come on let me kick a little game to you lena gets the wall All right, so this song was written by a dude, obviously, right? I don't feel like any <laughs> woman out there is like, you know, oh, no, I just want you to kick some game to me. This, this was written by Jermaine Dupree and uh, Manuel Seal. I, I don't know. What you guys think of this one? This one was tough for me, but what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I don't know. It was. It, I had to suspend my disbelief a little bit. I just found it really funny. Just the term "kick your game" it actually reminded me. I knew I knew a guy out <laughs> west who grew up in like Eastern Oregon, and I made a joke once about like he was interested in some girl, and I was like, "Oh, you're gonna go kick some game?" And he was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, go kick some game." And he's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" I was like, "You have never heard the term kick your game, kick some game." So yeah, I also found it kind of hilarious, like the guy saying, "Hey, can I kick some game?" And then she's saying. Well, you can get with me if you kick game right, and it's like, are, do you ask to kick game first? Like, what's, <laughs> what's the, the order of operations here? <laughs> yeah. It just—I don't know. It was—it was weird, <laughs> and it, yeah, no dynamics. Very, very just 
monotonous to me. It wasn't really working for me. Well, I noticed that it had a pretty distinct production approach right from the jump, which I appreciate. I appreciated the some of the differences. I think, to me, one of the hallmarks of this album, even though it is a little overly long with the interludes and such, I agree, is that they've brought together all these different producers, seemingly, and I can tell they're different, and yet there is some consistency in the sound. Like, And I have to somewhat... I don't know, maybe Tom can tell me who was behind the wheel of TLC Corp, but I was sort of crediting that somewhat to these women for being kind of holding it down a little bit and knowing their roles and fulfilling those roles across multiple producers and songwriters. So anyway, so right right off the bat, I think this production just at least sounds a little different than the last uh, major song on the record or the last song on the record. The bass tone's different. The vocal filter's kind of different. Percussion sounds are distinct. I don't know. It just to me, it seems like a hallmark of early 90s production was really using only one drum machine and one kit consistently. In fact, reference Bell Biv DeVoe. You listen to everything that Michael Bivens produced, it has the same snare drum sound and he uses the same like snare drum fill like on every song. It's kind of upsetting. <laughs> so. Well, didn't they call that? They I actually learned of a term for that school of music in looking up this that I think they called boom bop or something boom like bap, that. Yeah, not to be not to be confused with boom cha. <laughs> no. That that were uh, different. different. I'm just saying, but just so like mighty boom cha. So uh, do you know one one thing I thought right away on this record too was hey the drum sound got did get a lot better in the three intervening years from. 1992 or whatever the first TLC record the time of, of those Bell Biv DeVoe record I like those songs fine but I do think these this sounds a lot closer to a real drummer to me and it's one of the it's reasons three million dollars gets you Robin. that's yeah that's where all the money went obviously <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying I think contextually it was a time when it was distinction in this area was less common so I'm giving them some credit for that that's all I'm saying yeah, like Dupree was clearly, he was a studio wizard. That guy, he was like very clearly knew how to use all of his equipment. We've talked about this so many times before. Like just the like very capable use of equipment goes so long and in terms of like making something palatable. But, but guys, I feel like we're getting a little off topic here because you can't really be trying to tell me that kick your game is good. You actually enjoyed the song. No, no, it's Kick your game. It's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> yeah, Rob, I, I think Rob's trying to tell you that. I don't think it's that. T- I, I don't find it terrible. No, I don't. I really don't. And also, let me say this, because there are plenty yeah. of other way more terrible songs on this tracks on this record. I don't even want to call them songs. It's the best work in of the album title. Like, I get it. They're trying to get this theme of crazy, sexy, cool across. They say it way too many times, and they shoehorn it in quite a few times across various interludes. This song has the best work in of the album title. All I see is everybody trying to get with me. So I continue to play a crazy sexy cool composure when I lay my eyes on you. So there's one thing on this song that just grates on me. It's the sand and the Vaseline on this song that I cannot stand. And it's the delivery of the line. And I guess it's like the pre-chorus when she's like, she basically says something like, do something more clever than kick your, than say your name. Like the way that it seems like lazy songwriting to me 
when you take a you take a word where the emphasis is on the first syllable, but because of the cadence of the melody that you wrote, you have to change the emphasis to the second syllable, and it just sounds wrong. And like, just come up with a different fucking word than clever. Then, like, if that's the if that is dictated by the cadence of the melody. And the word that you wrote, you have to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. It stands out every time I hear it. And, like, it works sometimes in some songs, but not when it's, like, in a hook that you're repeating over and over again. I could not get over it. That was the thing that, to me, I was just like, just pick a different word. It's not – get a thesaurus. It's not that hard. I couldn't get over the Seinfeld bass. <laughs> I mean, so you hated all 90s R&B then, right, Phil? <laughs> no, just this particular implementation of the Seinfeld bass. <laughs> it was pretty standard. <laughs> Which was not played on bass, by the way. I know, I know. Am I the only Slow Jams fan here? Like, is that, I'm, am I the only one? No, I like Slow Jams. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I like Slow Jams. Okay. All right, just clarifying. Well... That 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 shoehorning in of a word doesn't really necessarily bother me. So that that didn't even jump out to me, to be honest with you, Tom. You can play that part now, I suppose, but that doesn't bother me. I think all songwriters do some of that, and yeah, it's a little lazy. I, I'm not denying the truth of that, but it's extremely common. It, it is common, and it's okay in a verse, but it's not okay in something you're going to repeat a whole bunch. So let's let's play it right now, and you can understand my my inner rage at this. All right, now let's transition into a slow jam that I actually really liked. Let's talk about the next song that we are going to dissect here, Digging On You. Before we play it, this is my hidden gem on the album. I had never heard it before. I really liked this song. I thought that there were a couple of really sweet, nice production notes in here. And uh, yeah, let's spin that for a second and we can we can dive into it. So boom, there we go, solid gold, right, Al? It's gold. No, <laughs> it's funny. So I wouldn't. It, I'm not sure I'd describe this as a hidden gem. Although, I, even though I was very steeped in MTV and and a lot of the hits that, that came out back then, I don't think I was familiar with this song. But when I researched it, this is sort of held up as one of the four sort of pillars of hits for this album. And so when I listened to it again, I could definitely see why it was a hit. I. I thought the verse was a little, it wasn't, it's just a little boring to be just perfectly honest. And and I understand that sounds maybe like a kind of Neanderthal type of thing to say. No, dude, that's just T-Boz's voice. She has a flat voice that doesn't have a lot of dynamic range. And so she does the verses and their verses are all kind of just sung like this and not interesting. But, you know, 
That's because she's cool, Tom. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> no, and I think the husky voice kind of thing works for her. Um, w- but I do think the chorus was really catchy, like in a way that I wasn't expecting. Like I felt like it kind of snuck up on me a little bit. I, I did notice that this song was written by Babyface, which felt very appropriate um, because I also couldn't escape the feeling that I was at like a middle school dance. and i'm not i don't necessarily mean that in a bad way although that can be open to interpretation but it just i couldn't escape that like evocative feeling of awkwardly you know dancing in you know like seventh or eighth grade waiting two-thirds of the way through the song to finally ask your girl to dance and by the time you get out on the floor the song's basically over and you dance for like 40 (laughs) seconds you're like all right yeah and i'm secretly happy because i didn't have to uh you know yeah make things awkward because who wants music that evokes memories, you know? That's, that's not its goal at all. <laughs> yeah. Pointless. You know, I have a note here that the first time I heard this song, and Tom, I agree that I felt like this was a bit of like, I wouldn't call it a hidden gem, but like, this was the song that I didn't really have any recollection of and was sort of surprised by and thought was pleasant. It almost could have been a country song. Like, I can imagine a version of this song where like Shania Twain comes in and almost nothing is different and <laughs> I think it's <laughs> I did not that did not occur to me at all I don't know if I can sign on for that I think that's a that's great that. observation actually and I think that speaks to you know country music has a lot of dynamics where there's a songwriter who's like behind the scenes and that it's the execution is done by the artist and so I, I can definitely see that. I, it's not something that would have occurred to me, but when you mention it, yeah, I, I think that's there. Okay, I'm going to play the other side again because I liked it okay. It's smooth. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, it's like summertime barbecue kind of music almost. That's more what it evoked with me. It almost made me think of the Will Smith song, Summertime, or the Fresh Prince song. I can't remember what he was calling himself then. But then I saw that it was a Babyface song, and I kind of put it in context of his other songs, some of the soaring melodies, end of the road, breathe again. And I thought it was kind of bland. Tom, you mentioned that it's sort of genre specific, that things just kind of repeat endlessly and don't have a lot of dynamics to them. Okay. You know, fair enough. It was chill. It'd be nice background music, whatever middle school dance. Yeah. The bridge was a nice touch. A little, I think there was like a minor chord switch or something, but I wasn't getting much melodically from it. I was a little underwhelmed for Babyface. I guess that's the context I was. Putting yeah, it in. you make a nice point. It's a, it's, by the way, Rob, it's not. It's it's it's, it's it goes from a D minor seven, and then the bridge they hit a D seven, so they give you the, the major when you're not expecting on the bridge, which I I thought is a nice pop of color. You know, it's like the bowl of lemons that just really pops the color in the room. Agreed. I n- I noticed the pop, but it just it just felt a little underwhelming in that context. Phil, I was I was going to agree that I in the context of Babyface songs. It's a little, it's a little neutered, right? For for a babyface song, the chorus is super catchy though, and and not that I think that for, makes it a great song. I, I was a little more pleasantly surprised than anything because I hadn't really had much familiarity with it. But I think it's definitely it's it's a little bit of an earworm. I thought, and to me, that is like that has the fingerprints of of, of a you know pretty accomplished songwriter. I will say the. Um the delivery, and they do beat it to death by the end of the song, but the delivery in the chorus of the lines where he's like, he's like, baby, baby, ooh, baby, baby, that, like, little 
it's unexpected. You would expect it to just sort of like go into like baby, 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 and like that. The first time it caught me, I was like, oh, that's a tasteful way to do that. I think that that mixes it up a little bit and takes what otherwise would be like completely trite and somehow makes it less trite. I don't know why the, the lyrical content doesn't change at all. But uh, I also think that that synth line that kind of plays at the beginning and comes in uh, kind of over the chorus at the end, I think it ties it together very nicely. And the way that the the way that the chords sort of like are super consistent over the chorus to uh, over the verse of the chorus is like an F sharp to a G sharp minor, F sharp G sharp minor, and then over the um, over the chorus it's basically like F sharp G sharp minor, F sharp A sharp minor, G sharp minor, B. It's like it's 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 they really give you that sort of like lull you into that there's going to be no change and then they give you that little change and like sometimes the little changes pay off and i think that they, i think it paid off you're right rob it's not it's not end of the road it's not uh you know um any of these uh, or um you know any of the end of the road i think we just described is not actually a babyface song but it's not any of these like soaring like compositions but it, i i think that it was tasteful no, end of the road is a babyface song we were talking about it's oh, so yeah. hard to oh, say we're goodbye. Talking about, uh, it's so hard to say goodbye yes. yeah i i don't think it's a bad song i want to be clear i thought it was a nice song i wouldn't mind it listening to it again but didn't blow me away all right well, also no Lisa Lopez on this on this track. So, mm. where was the rap verse that we all needed for this song that would have really uh, brought it to the next level? What sucks about it is they probably waited three weeks for her to come in and write and do the rap verse, and then just figured out she wasn't coming, and then proceeded. Yeah, yeah, That's right. what cost all the money. It's very just possible, sitting there in the right. studio. Ah, so speaking of songs with a uh, very notable Lopez rap verse, let's talk about Waterfalls. This song, I find its content to be like pretty interesting. It's like pretty positive. I, I had to look this up uh, to sort of get an idea of kind of what was going on here. From what I can tell, this song is about a guy I think is like a, a runner or something like that. And everybody's like very much cheering him on. Sort of like, you know, the chorus is very like, Go, go, Jason Waterfalls. You know, they're, they're really trying to give him a lot of oomph behind that and, uh, you know, really lift him up. But I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. The song's actually about AIDS. So let's talk again <laughs> about Waterfalls. <laughs> and let's listen to this for a second. Maybe one of the uh, most popular songs about AIDS of all time. Okay, very nice production on this song. However, I think the song was probably popular for the music video. That's just my opinion here. Alan, what do you think about this song? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Rob mentioned Creep being sort of his highlight, high point of the album. To me, this song is a fucking banger. The, the, the bass in this song, which I later learned was almost entirely improvised, is hot like the i don't know if it's like a wah or some kind of envelope filter but just that won't 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 just nasty and i think that the bass is like the total backbone of of this song as with most songs it was this song was actually so i mean we've all heard the song a million times the million dollar video all that stuff nothing needs to be said there 
but it was actually a lot funkier than I remember when I put headphones on and just listened to it. I mean, it's just it's just an awesome song. I know we've kind of shit on the uh, Left Eyes raps a little bit, but I I thought actually her segment in this song was really nice, was really well done. And it almost felt like a little bit of like seasoning or a little bit of spice where I think because it wasn't all over the record that when it came in, it was kind of right for that, that moment. Yeah. I mean, it's just a iconic song, iconic video. And, you know, I was very happy to, to listen to it again. What about you, Phil? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, I thought was more like gateway jazz, right? It had, it has a cool horn part that's sort of like it, it sort of calls and responses in this, this very subdued way with the main lyric, um, both during the the verse and the chorus. In general, I just thought this was cool. Tom, I also think like this is another tune that sort of fits that that hip hop format, right? Where there isn't really a change. It has a proper bridge, right? But other than that, there isn't really a change in the song. Am I correct? Yeah, the chords are very consistent in the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tasteful as hell, though. Sure. It, it doesn't It doesn't really fatigue in this song. Like, again, it's major. Not like I think a lot of those sort of uh, loop-based songs, for whatever reason, tend to feel a little darker. This one doesn't. It feels very up and very light. Uh, and, yeah, in general, it's just, uh, yeah, this is, this is definitely, I think, the, the most successful piece on the, the record. Yeah, I, I like the song just fine. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's a good song. I agree. It's well produced. Everything you said, tasteful use of horns, the wah guitar is you know or the wah whatever. guitar is cool. Yeah, the, the it's it's very nicely done, and I think you're right. Left eye fits in well to it. One of the things that jumped out to me is, have you heard that song Waterfalls on McCartney too? Because I definitely think. It's a pretty direct rip of that song. I mean, they took it and made it their own, but there's a Paul McCartney song called Waterfalls. And the first oh, line is, interesting. don't go jumping waterfalls, please keep to the lake. And and it's it, very similar melodically even. I thought that was really bizarre. If we're being fair, that's like, in terms of the artists that we've covered so far and the egregious stealing, that's pretty low on the list of like <laughs> okay. the egregious stealing fair that's enough. happened with some of these albums. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair I don't enough. know. I would, I would, I would challenge that a little bit uh, because I feel like that really changes my not not that I mean music of this era. I think was sort of rife with samples and uh, inspiration to use air quotes, you know, from from other artists, but. Um, no, that that changes things a little bit for me. Not that it lessens my opinion of like the total package of the song, but that that's new, new shit has come to light. <laughs> I I had never heard that McCartney song because it's from his solo catalog until, but I saw it on that Rick Rubin documentary, and they were listening to it, and I was like, well, "What the heck is this? This sounds awfully familiar." So I just thought that was interesting. I also heard this just could be a Wikipedia apocryphal thing that CeeLo Green sings on this song. Because he was just an totally. Atlanta guy, and T. Boz was that. But I yeah. can't, I can't find him in the track. Where is, where is he in this track? I think it's on the, um, the. Don't go chase. I think he's just on backups there, man. 
It just feels really mixed down. Man. I, I was I was really listening for it, and I I couldn't hear it. I'll, I'll tell you my favorite part of the song, though. I do think it's a good song. There's a little very tasteful thing where right as T-Boz goes to the first chorus, I can't remember exactly what the line is, right after she sings her last line, the wah guitar kind of mirrors it rhythmically, and it's a little like echo thing. I think it's really nice. Dude, that is what's the wah bass in this. The bass in this is so effing good. It's re- this is like my favorite kind of bass playing. It's fun. It's bouncy. It's not hemmed in by the root notes. It's really, it's really tasteful. And the guy, the Lamarquis Jefferson, is the bass player on it. Awesome, awesome bass. His name is his nickname is Lamarquis remarkable jefferson and uh it is remarkable the bass is, is definitely remarkable <laughs> you gotta get a good really nickname man you're never gonna cut it as a session musician <laughs> unless you have a killer nickname <laughs> <laughs> that dude needs to play with bernie uh the hit the hit maker bernard uh, purdy oh yeah Barnard uh, they, they would purdy. make a solid uh <laughs> tandem dude the, like just the synth and the uh, electric piano and the horns it's like it's really tasteful i I do think that this song has a lot of taste in it and um again that the the rap verse could have been beaten to death but it came in right when it should have and it left right when it should have that is the thing that if you say hey don't go chasing waterfalls Everybody can say like the first six words of the Lisa Lopez, I seen a rainbow, but that's it. They got nothing after that. But like, you know, everybody, <laughs> that's like what comes in everybody's head when they hear this song, at least, at least in my head. And I, I'm going to assume that I think just the same way everybody else does. So that's, I'm sure that's a very safe assumption. It's a, it's a well, it's a well-produced hit song for sure. I, I think we all know Waterfalls, super popular yeah, at the time, very great music video. One of the reasons why this album sold 14 million copies. If anybody has anything else to talk about before we go on to what I consider to be the worst song in this album, speak now or forever shut your mouth. Wait, wait, wait. So we're not talking about Red Light Special? Uh, you don't no. think that's the worst song on the record, do you? Red Light Special? No, no. no I don't think Red Light Special is the worst song in the album. It's, all right, it's all right. so middle of the road. One, one thing I want to highlight about Red Light Special that I thought was really cool uh, which is, again, just like a really slick production choice. Is it next time you check, or you know, if you check this track out, there's basically a guitar solo throughout the entire song <laughs> played on a synthesizer, right? The guy is just like ripping it on the synth, just like Jimi Hendrix. He sounds amazing, too. He's crushing it. And then there's an actual guitar solo. <laughs> they cut over to some dude like ripping fuzz with like a whammy bar and shit. Right. And it's like the Eddie only guitar solo on the record. And I was listening to it and I was like, this is, this is like, they were definitely laughing a lot in the studio this day. Like this was a fun day, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you gotta be shirtless and greased up to record that solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely gotta be greased up. Let's move on. We're, we're talking about what I think is the actual worst song. Red Light Special is not the worst song on the album. In my opinion, worst song on the album, If I Was Your Girlfriend. Let's just run this for a second. This just train wreck of a song. Shit, 
Alan? Give it to me. Lay it on me. Tell me you agree with me 100%. Worst song on the album. Oh, I mean, I think this is like the Citizen Kane of <laughs> all recorded <laughs> songs. I mean, geez, I, I, I don't know what to say about that. No. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's weird. I, I'm i not going to shit on the song itself because I do think it was sort of a I, – I didn't realize it was a, a Prince song. Not that I had even heard it before that. Well, let me ask you a quick question. If somebody told you Prince wrote a song on this album and then you just listened to the album, would you have picked this song as the song that Prince wrote? No, absolutely not. Well, it's not like I don't know. Prince. I guess that would qualify as like a Prince deep cut. I'm not even sure. No, I would have 100 percent um, picked it out. That would have been like, oh, this is the Prince song, definitely. Okay, I can I see think that. Based on its title, I think it's a very Prince title. I can yeah. see that. I also feel like they're doing a bad Prince impression the entire time. Like, I feel like they listened to a Prince demo and were like, how can we just try to do well, that? Exactly? Hold on. So I don't think this ever made it on a Prince album. I think it's like a B side or something. And I went. I don't know if you guys went and listened to the Prince version. But did he like speed up his voice a little bit? Like he sounds like prepubescent. It does sound a little more higher pitched. Yeah, I do think this was on a, on an album. I I don't. I'm not like a Prince, you know, biographer by any means. Um, he, it does seem a little sped up. I it's it seems like a weird choice for a cover. I, it I, it does just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I thought it was kind of kind of weak. Uh, you know, Phil, what are your thoughts? Uh, I was trying to give a listen to the Prince version right now. I didn't realize there was a Prince recorded version. Tom, I was happy to hear you say that, you know, you think this is the worst song on the album. I don't know that I would go that far. The interludes are not songs, I suppose. <laughs> no. They're like uh, the skits on, like, you know, the, the 90s rap albums or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. They don't really yeah, count. Exactly. The Wu-Tang. Yeah, yeah, they're just not really that funny. Yeah, I mean, this song sucks. Yeah, I, 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 Now that you say it, I do think maybe I could identify it as a Prince cover. Like, there's like, it's like they picked the bad Prince drum sounds and used all of them <laughs> in their production of a Prince song. Yeah. <laughs> this is like Prince leading right into Bat Dance, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, in all honesty, it's like Prince wrote a lot of songs. And one of the things about Prince was a lot of the times he was like, this ain't any good. So like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to promote this. I'm not gonna do a whole lot with it. I mean, you know, if I had to fill out a double album, which is uh, what that was originally on, is the album Sign O the Times. It was a double album. So he's like, yeah, I need some filler. It's basically like you know, disc two, track thirteen of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness or something yeah. like that. Just like we just gotta we just gotta fill it out here, man. Yeah, no one's gonna no um, one's gonna get that that far. Yeah, really, they're gonna check that a long time ago. Guys, when are you putting out your double disc? <laughs> <laughs> it's any day now, I'm sure. My double disc? Yeah. Oh, yeah. come on. My double disc of all, um, you know, essentially like straight versions of Weird Al songs. <laughs> I thought it was going to be um, a Deep Space Nine. Uh, oh, no. Dark track. I want to do, I wanna do uh, Return to Eternia, where it's just like ripping prog jazz and then someone like uh, journey to the center of the earth, like telling He-Man stories. So these are commercially viable ideas. Yeah, for like 80 minutes. Great, great, great yeah. pitches. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. So the anecdote. We, we can do that after we do my Arby's the, album. The, the anecdote I heard that I liked about this, and it, I've always thought Prince was a really a world-class weirdo. And I like, I like that aspect of him more than I actually like his music, really. But I heard that he wrote this song because he was jealous about his girlfriend's relationship with her twin sister. That they were a little too close for his comfort. 
That is the most perverted <laughs> thing I've ever heard in my entire life. That short little leprechaun <laughs> pervert bastard. What the hell, man? How dare you have a close relationship with your twin sister? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And he's like probably like all dressed in like velvet and frills when he's just like, I think you guys are a little too close. You're spending more time with so, me. So How are you this, not on a list? So in this case, Prince's girlfriend's twin sister is also her girlfriend? No, I think he's it's like written from the if it's Prince talking, he's saying if I was your girlfriend meaning like your best friend. You're, you would treat oh, me, God. you'd give me more of yourself or you know whatever. So he's jealous of the friendship of her twin sister. Yes. <laughs> it also the the subject matter does not translate to being sung by three women right. at all. Right. That's why it was such a strange choice. Like, not that you have to go for, you know, I'm I'm all about covering like a deep cut because I think that can be kind of cool. But it it I, I I didn't see the the translation or I didn't see like the why. You know, like who I don't I curious whose decision this even was. You know, like <laughs> I I can't imagine anyone in the group was like, hey, here's this like weird <laughs> print song that we should you know add to the album. Yeah. We paid seven million dollars for it, so we might as well use it. Maybe somebody owed Prince some money. At some point, they're like, Prince wants us to cover this song, and you don't say no to Prince. You're not just like, no, no, I'm I'm good. No, sorry. I've got, you know, much better material to go through, like our sexy interlude (laughs) or our case of the fake people, which that song sucks. Yeah, that song does suck. But I feel like that's, that's also, like, just a quick case of the fake people interlude. I feel like that was a very common thing in, like, second 90s uh, hip-hop albums of just, like, now I have all this money and a bunch of people that, like, uh, pretend like they like me want a part of my money. As it very famously, Tony, Tony, Tony's If I Had No Loot, which is basically just all about, like, people, like, wanting your money now that you're famous. I feel like that was, like, that showed up on a lot of, like, 90s hip-hop albums. And I don't know if I... Maybe I'm just like overplaying it because I love that Tony, Tony, Tony song, but uh, yeah. No, I mean, I feel like the chronic is largely about Dre talking about like how people are trying to blast him now that he's rich, right? And he's always one step ahead. Yeah, there's also the chronic <laughs> 2001 where they talk about how like, you know, Dre fell off and, you know, and he's like, yeah, I'm still here, still Dre. Forgot about Trey, baby. Anyway, any final comments on if I was your girlfriend? Is it like you know? I I think it's a train wreck. I honestly, I think that it's jarring when it comes in, and then like uh, when it settles into what it's supposed to be. I'm like, why did you start the song like that? You didn't need to do that. You could have started the song in a much more palatable way. I'm happy to hear you say that you thought it was terrible. Why does that validate your opinion that it was terrible? I, you know, I just, I just felt some degree of relief, you know, that I wasn't like. So I was gonna be like, "This is the one. This should have been video number one." Yeah, I admit I would have been a little confused if the consensus was this was a masterpiece and I was just missing something. So I hear that. All right, so we are rounding home base here, people. TLC is crazy, sexy, cool. Let's get overall impressions and votes. Does this belong on the list of 1,001 albums you must hear before you die? Alan, 
Give it to me. I'm going to say yes. And I, I think for me, even though I cannot imagine that I will play this again anytime soon, um, you know, I kind of got my fill here this last week, but I think it's, it's representative of an era. And I think that counts for something. I think you can listen to this album and feel like you're almost like teleported back to this era. And, you know, I think in many ways, this probably influenced a lot of later, you know, R&B in the 90s, you know, again, whether that was the songwriting or or the, the delivery, but they're, uh, they were in a really important group. And, you know, for, for that reason, I, I, I do think it, it belongs on the list. Phil, give it to me. What's your yeah, vote, you know, uh, Alan, I, I tend to agree with you. You know, if I'm looking at this from a, a really critical, you know, cynical standpoint, there's only six or seven good songs on this record. Right, really, I think. There aren't even that many. Six or seven good songs is not a bad record. That's a lot of songs, dude. <laughs> so, but in a different way, I mean, I, I think the production's fantastic. I absolutely think that this was sort of like a, a seminal record for, for mainstream R&B. I definitely think there's a ton of music downstream from this. I also think you can look at the writers and producers on the record and like you, you, you can get like almost like an all things must pass sort of vibe. Like everybody was in the room for this year. Like this is what they were doing. And it is like pretty successful. I just think they got way overboard with the interludes. Um, I think, you know, what winds up running probably almost an hour probably could have been a really good 40 minutes. Um, but I'm going to say yes. Robbie, bring it home. Yeah, it's a yes for me as well. I'm a little surprised that the crew went in this direction. But for some of the same reasons, I have to say yes. I think it fails a little bit as an album in the sense that it has excess and filler material on it. But is the premise you're going to go your whole life and never hear waterfalls or creep? Absolutely not. That will not be a life lived appropriately. I think this is an example of art that is not made for me, and I'm okay with that. The older I get, the more I understand that not everything is made for me, and that's okay. So for all the reasons you guys said, too, for all those reasons, it's a yes for me. They belong on the list. Give it a listen. Maybe don't listen that closely, you know, but listen. Yeah, you know, we talked about this with uh, the Zombies album, about how, like, you put on about 40 seconds of the Zombies, and you're like, 1960s, I got it. This is, like, 1990s, and it informed so much, I th- I feel, of the 1990s sound, of the zeitgeist of what was going on in the 90s. You know, did I have a fantastic time listening to every track on this album? Absolutely not. Was I extraordinarily pleasantly surprised when the good tracks came on? I was. And so... You know, overall, the juice is worth the squeeze. I think you should absolutely listen to this album, if nothing more than the fact that, like, it's one of the top-selling albums by a female group of all time. Yeah, just get your get your 90s nostalgia on. It's It holds up. It holds just, up in a way that I was not expecting it to hold up. Just for sake of argument, how does this stack up against the top Bee Gees record? <laughs> Oh, it's, I have no idea. Wait, what What are you calling the top Bee Gees record? What are you referring to there? Just, yeah, so we got 14 million copies of this were sold. I'll tell you what I was... Sorry, we didn't talk too much about the stuff that was happening around it. We talked about Belle Biv DeVoe and Boys the Men. But I was sort of... One of the things I kind of took a glance and listened to was Janet, period, by Janet Jackson. Mm-hmm. Salt and Pepper's Very Necessary. I don't know. This is sort of in the same category as the score, which is 
a better album by far oh, for sure. The score is way Definitely. better. Also very necessary. Way I can I can I can log my my thumbs up for Janet and the score now. Yeah, but I, okay, I'm I'm tapping out of very necessary. I think Janet has some good songs. Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. My point is, I think these are some of the seminal records of this general genre and time period in history, and I think this can stand with them. Not as good, but it can stand with. Them. I agree. I think that's fair. Yeah, totally, totally. So. We are unanimous. Yeah, I'm surprised, uh, aware surprised that we're unanimous. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a little bit more contentious. But yeah, 444 TLC. You know, we didn't mention the entire time. It's certainly my fault that Lisa Lopez died in 2002 in a tragic car accident while she was in Honduras. Um, it's terrible. It's really, it's actually horrible, honestly. Like, they had gotten... I believe out of their bad old situation where they were not making a lot of money and were like actually putting out stuff, making a lot of money. They put out no scrubs off that album fan mail, sold a ton of copies of that. She's finally finding success. Pretty young, died in a car accident when she hit a telephone pole in Honduras. And uh, that's terrible. Super, yeah, I guess I shouldn't have ended the podcast on this super down note here. But uh, let's talk about what we are going to do next week. Uh, oddly enough, that is a kind of a good segue into the album that we're going to do next week because this is an album that is not a random selection. We usually randomly select albums that we're going to do. This time, not a random selection. We are going to do ZZ Top's Trace Hombres. And that is in memoriam of Dusty Hill, who very recently died from ZZ Top. I think that, uh, you know the career of a band like ZZ Top that we've actually already talked about on this podcast uh, when we did the Zombies uh, episode absolutely deserves a uh, bit of a retrospective look at it. And so what better way than look at Trace Hombres, three friends who are in a band together from basically inception to end. And that's, it's very rare these days. So everybody listen to Trace Hombres for next week. Pour one out on the sidewalk for uh, Dusty Hill. Watch that uh, ZZ Top documentary. If you haven't watched the ZZ Top documentary, that is fantastic. I think that it has my uh, one of my favorite lines of all time, delivered by Frank Beard, where he basically says, <laughs> they're talking about why the band broke up, and he says, I don't know if you've ever tried heroin, brother, but it's fucking awesome. <laughs> 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 like, that's the whole, they're like, why'd the band break up? It's like, yeah, it's heroin. It's fucking great, so you should get on that. <laughs> Until then, you have some homework, people. Listen to Trace Ombres. Find that ZZ Top documentary. I believe it's called Little Old Band from Texas. And, uh, yeah, consume all that media and come back next week. Uh, Until then, I have been Tom. Alan. Phil. And I am Rob. Boosh.